Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our uh, talk about Deja Vu. That's right. If you didn't listen to part one, go back and listen to part one, because uh, this is this is definitely one of those uh, uh, pair of episodes where you need to experience them in order. But uh, we, we kicked off by talking about uh, some personal experiences with Deja Vu uh, and also getting into some of the, the, the rich variety that is to be found under the, the broad uh, categorization of deja vu experiences. Uh, in this episode, we're going to kick off by really getting into some of the major theories and explanations for this thing called deja vu. Right. So last time I cited, uh, there, there's a major paper on uh, the, the research on deja vu that was published in 2003 by a researcher named Alan S. Brown. Uh, it was published in Psychological Bulletin, and we cited it last time talking about a lot of the common findings about deja vu, including the fact that it appears to be very strongly associated with stress and fatigue. The more tired and stressed out you are, the more likely you are to have a deja vu experience. The uh, studies that show it associated with travel, people who travel are more likely to experience deja vu. Um, the studies that show that that certain drugs can apparently cause lots of deja vu. And then especially the fact that uh, deja vu appears to decrease with age, that as you get older in life, you you on average have fewer deja vu experiences, which I'm still finding interesting. I'm, I'm coming back to that one a lot. But yeah, so now we want to dive into uh, the th major theories and explanations. And my main guide on this is uh, Brown's uh, paper from 2003, where he, he reviews most of the existing research. There have been a few developments since then, and we'll talk about those uh, later on. But there, there are basically several, there are like four main categories that Brown outlines uh, about what the explanations for deja vu could be. And the categories are going to be the following. So first you got some kind of dual processing. Second, you got neurological dysfunction. Third, you have memory issues. And then fourth, you have attentional catch-up. Um, now, one of the first things I think we should mention is that it can be kind of difficult to understand the causes of deja vu because deja vu is inherently a little bit difficult to study. It's not super easy to trigger episodes of deja vu in a laboratory or brain imaging context. There, there are some techniques we can mention, but you can't just like start up an fMRI and then run it and hope somebody has an experience of deja vu while it's running. Remember, like deja vu is relatively rare. Most people experience it at some point in their life, but I think, you know, an average fig figure is that a lot of people say they have a deja vu experience something like once a year. So you couldn't expect for it to just happen while you're looking for it. Yeah, deja vu is not really the sort of thing you can just uh, have on command. Nobody can say, all right have some deja vu. And likewise, uh, it's not that I haven't seen, I, I don't think I've seen any evidence uh, or any claims of anybody who could produce a feeling of deja vu just by willing it, though we will get into some unique cases uh, a little later. Right. Uh, that would be an interesting uh, skill if one had it. Uh, now, there are some cases where it appears that deja vu can be triggered by certain clinical interventions. We mentioned a couple of cases of it being associated with certain combinations of drugs in the last episode, uh, like a couple of drugs used to treat the flu, um, but uh, also by, no big surprise here, electrical stimulation of the brain. 
Uh, in his big review, Brown describes findings about deja vu and brain stimulation in patients with temporal lobe epilepsy. Again, remember um, from last time that deja vu is one of the symptoms that has been described as part of the aura preceding an epileptic seizure in people with temporal lobe epilepsy. But another thing uh, about temporal lobe epilepsy is that in some cases in history, uh, electrical stimulation of the brain has been used in the treatment and diagnosis of temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, and so I, I want to read a section from Brown here writing about this. Uh, Brown writes, quote, with surface stimulation of the cortex, and that's electrical stimulation, Mullen and Penfield elicited deja vu experiences in 10 out of 217 people with temporal lobe epilepsy. Recent procedures involving deep electrode brain implantation have shown that deja vu, similar to one that occurs uh, in the aura, can be elicited with stimulation of the amygdala and hippocampus. Although these experiences were not reported in detail, the deja vu generally consisted of a sudden feeling of unfamiliarity in the hospital environment and was often accompanied by epigastric phenomena and fear. And uh, epigastric phenomena refers to strange feelings in the abdomen, especially I think the upper part of the abdomen. I've read it described as um, getting a feeling sort of above the stomach and right below the chest, like uh, this weird feeling kind of like when you're on a roller coaster and you're, you're plummeting down on the other side, you know, that rising in the gut. Yeah, yeah, I believe we we discussed that a little bit in the last episode. Brown writes, quote, uh, the elicitation of deja vu through electrical stimulation may not be reliable. Uh, Halgren et al. in 1978 stimulated several dozen brain locations in a group of people with temporal lobe epilepsy on two different occasions, two weeks apart, and found that a number of sites that elicited a deja vu on one session did not do so on the other. Deja vu experiences also resulted from stimulating the non-diseased hemisphere, suggesting that the experience is not necessarily specific to the tissue where the seizure originates. So that's interesting. You've got deja vu associated in some cases with people with temporal lobe epilepsy, but that it appears like if you, you stimulate one part of the brain one week and it gives you deja vu, but a different part of the brain the next week, that might give you deja vu. And maybe the original place that gave you deja vu last week doesn't give it to you anymore. So, uh, yeah, there's some kind of... Uh, discontinuity here about how exactly stimulating different parts of the brain contribute to the deja vu experience subjectively. But there have been some other interesting things uh, that I know we'll get to later in the episode uh, of trying to trigger deja vu in otherwise uh, neurologically typical people, uh, for example, using using certain types of uh, virtual reality stimulation that, yeah, I think we're get, we'll get to that maybe in the third part of today's episode. But uh, I guess we got to get directly to these four main theories explaining what could be going on in the brain when you're having deja vu, um, assuming it's not like a, a supernatural phenomenon, which we, we don't think it is. There's a good amount of evidence that it is a, a function of the brain. So right, uh, the, the ghost hypothesis is really not uh, not not highly valued in scientific <laughs> circles here. Yeah, so we won't be picking up on that one today. Uh, but so again, these are the, the the four main branches that that Brown outlines are dual processing, uh, neurological dysfunction memory error, and attentional catch-up. And I'll go ahead and say that I think the main two branches that have explanatory power going for them today, at least as far as I can tell, are the last two I mentioned, like the, the memory ones and the attentional ones. But since the other two have been very important in the history of studying deja vu, we, we should at least talk about them for a bit. 
Um, so the first one is this idea of dual processing. There are these multiple hypotheses that fall into this category, but they all basically amount to the same thing. They say, you know, there are two different processes in the brain that usually occur simultaneously. They happen at the same time, but occasionally they become asynchronous. They, they get detached in time, and suddenly there's a lag between them. And the, these uh, types of explanations tend to be the oldest and least scientifically justified, but uh, they are kind of interesting to think about. So, for example, one that Brown cites is the idea of uh, the, this old theory of dual consciousness. Uh, the idea was that there, there are two separate types of consciousness in the brain. There's one normal type of consciousness, and what that does is monitor everything that happens in the outside world. It's, you know, your regular brain that's looking out through your eyes and, and sees what's going on. And then the other version is the parasitic consciousness which uh, we might refer to as metacognition. It monitors the internal state of the brain itself. And under this old hypothesis, deja vu is created when normal consciousness is impaired by something like fatigue or stress, and it's left up to the parasitic consciousness to evaluate incoming information. And because the parasitic consciousness is not well adapted to evaluating incoming information, it gets confused, and it confuses what it's looking at now for a memory of the past. Uh, I, I, while I like this idea, this one appears to be entirely speculative. It's mostly based on like 19th century conceptions of the mind and brain. So I don't think this one is very likely a good explanation today. Now, another one uh, in this branch is, would be like encoding and retrieval. Uh, Brown says this was proposed by Denayer in 1979, and basically it takes the form of a metaphor of the brain as a combination tape recorder and player. Uh, did, you, did you have one of those when you were a kid, Robert? Oh, yeah, of course. But yeah, okay, so the metaphor here by Denayer is that your brain has a combination tape recorder and player. And, and Brown explains this well, so I'm going to quote from him. Quote, under normal conditions, memory encoding and retrieval operate in a manner similar to the record and playheads, respectively, on a tape recorder. Either the record encode or the play retrieve head can be on, but not both at once. On rare occasions, the tape machine in a person's memory has both record and playheads active simultaneously during a new experience, creating a false sense of familiarity for the newly encoded experience. So basically, the idea is that you are experiencing the memory as it is happening, um, which uh, is, you know, sounds paradoxical, but, uh, but the idea of encoding and retrieving happening at the same time. Yeah, and so this never, Brown says this hypothesis never really got developed beyond just this metaphorical stage. Like he never, you know, got into the nitty gritty of like what parts of the brain this would exactly be involving and how it would work. Um, but I would say... While it is still at this metaphorical stage, this is kind of close to some later uh, later explanations that are backed up by more empirical research. I, I think it's not quite on the money, but it's it's getting part of the way there. Uh, I think especially with with some of the ones that we'll talk about with uh, with attention later on. Yeah, and I also like how it kind of helps to further break down the nature of um, of something that is novel and something that is familiar, and how it it basically works, uh, you know, in our experience of um, of cognitive data. Yeah, well, and it makes me think about how, um, in a way, there's almost no real 
objective thing uh, that is novelty, you know, that like every time you're looking at anything in the world in a way, it's sort of novel because like your head's in a different position. And you like, even if you're looking at something you've looked at a thousand times before, the light's kind of different. You're looking at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, the brain just does a, a does a very good job taking things that are, you know, different data sets coming in through the eyes or the ears or whatever it is and saying like, okay, you know what that is. That's the same coffee cup you've looked at a thousand times, even though it's not a photo exact copy of how it looked the last time you looked at it. Yeah. I mean, as sense data goes, the details of the coffee cup are not that important. And the brain does a a pretty good job in in, um, in working with the senses of letting that kind of fade into the background. Uh, But then, you know, any day you're liable to pick up that coffee cup and really focus on it and and kind of see it for the first time. And that's one of the the crazy things about the the close relationship between uh, the novel uh, and uh, the familiar. Yeah, and that emphasizes that, like, novel and familiar, they're not objective features of the world. They're, like, subjective simulations. Yeah. This is this is almost an example of this, but not quite. Um, I, I don't. I've had a, an Xbox uh, One controller for so long, and I just discovered you can plug headphones into the controller itself <gasps> to get sound. It, uh-huh. uh, totally, it, it's changed my life here in um, you know self isolation. Oh, now uh, late in the night, your house is not filled with tiny screams. That <laughs> right, right, yeah. If I want to, want to play, uh, <laughs> yeah, if I want to play Doom uh, Eternal at a at a weird hour, I can, I can be the only one to hear it. Likewise, my son is trying out Minecraft for the first time, and we can mm-hmm. plug him into the the uh, controller, and then if he jerks the controller around, he's not pulling things off of the the you know the 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 TV tray or something. So, uh, so yeah, but but you know, this is an example of I don't know how many times I've looked at this device, but I've never seen this detail and uh uh you know a lot of things in life are like that you know when you really really stop to look at at it you can you can uncover the novel wrinkles in the thing i might want to come back to this example later in the episode uh and uh maybe when we talk about the the memory and attentional branches okay two more examples of dual processing hypotheses so uh, another one brown cites is the idea of perception and memory seems kind of similar to the last one it was proposed by a researcher named bergson Basically, it supposes that perception and memory formation happen at the same time. Like, you know, I I look at Gritty, the Philadelphia Flyers mascot, for the first time. My brain sees him. It creates a memory of having seen him simultaneously. Bergson suggests that sometimes stress or fatigue can cause the newly formed memory to bump into perception so that I get uh, the feeling that I have seen Gritty before, Again, this one is kind of fuzzy and speculative as far as hypotheses go. <laughs> well, you know, we all feel that we've seen Gritty before because Gritty was with us in the womb. Uh, <laughs> gritty is primordial. Yeah, Gritty was there before we were born. You know that's going to happen one day. Like they, they uh, a big block of shale shears away from a Cambrian formation and then just, just the outline of Gritty there among all the <laughs> trilobites. He was waiting the whole time. Uh, Okay, but then uh, the fourth one of these dual processing hypotheses, hypotheses, sorry, uh, this is the only one of the four that really seemed all that plausible to me. Uh, So this one is called familiarity and retrieval. And this was proposed by a researcher named Glure in 1990. And Glure suggested that when we encounter an image or an object or scenario or whatever it is that we've seen before, there are two separate things that happen. One is the retrieval of the past memories about that thing. So I see Gritty, I have seen him before, and I 
I remember the other times I saw Gritty and had thoughts about him. Uh, but the other thing is the emotion of familiarity that accompanies the recall. So I, I see Gritty, I have memories, but also I have a feeling, it's this emotional feeling that, oh, I know who that is. Uh, that, you know, that is gritty. I, I feel familiar with what's going on right now. And from what I can tell, there's not really any direct evidence for this hypothesis, but this one does seem kind of plausible to me because we've talked about other cases of mismatch between recognition and familiarity. For example, uh, in talking about Capgras delusion, I think we mentioned in part one, mm -hmm. which is this delusion often caused by brain injury in which a person believes that their loved ones have been replaced by lookalikes or doppelgangers. And it's believed that Capgras delusion stems from a malfunction in the brain where recognition is triggered. So you see a person and you know who you're looking at. You're like, oh, yes, you know, that that is Jeff. But the normally accompanying feeling of familiarity is not there. It doesn't get triggered. So you see somebody you recognize as Jeff, but he does not feel familiar. It doesn't feel like your old friend. So you say, oh, he's been replaced by a lookalike. What's normally a case of dual processing here has been severed. So if a dual processing failure like this were actually an explanation for deja vu, I think it would have to go the opposite way, right? It would have to go the opposite of Capgras delusion, where a feeling of familiarity is triggered while actual retrieval of associated memories is not. And along these lines, a uh, Capgras delusion would ex would actually be more analogous to the inverse of déjà vu that we mentioned last time, jamais vu, in which uh, a familiar object suddenly feels unfamiliar. Uh, but again, from what I can tell, this kind of explanation I think is perfectly possible, but I can't find direct experimental evidence for it. So I think it might just remain right now in the realm of like, yeah, m maybe something like this could explain some cases of deja vu, but, but we don't have strong evidence that these explanations are the right ones yet. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. But when we come back, we will continue to explore uh, some of the explanations for what may be going on with deja vu. All right, we're back. All right, so we just talked about the first branch of possible explanations for deja vu, uh, probably the oldest branch of explanations, which was the idea of dual processing, that when you experience deja vu, it's because two different things that normally happen in the at the same time in the brain get severed, and one happens after the other one, or they get, you know, one happens without the other one, and this causes this, this disconnect. Um, the next branch of explanations that uh, Alan S. Brown offers in his 2003 paper are neurological explanations. Now, the first one is seizures. We know that deja vu is a, you know, not super common, but a recognized experience in the aura of people who have temporal lobe epilepsy. So what if normal deja vu that happens in, you know, 60% of people at some point is actually just a kind of mild seizure? Uh, a lot of people have proposed this over the years, but Brown says that the evidence for this does not appear to be very good. Though deja vu is a feature of seizures uh, for people with TLE, people with epilepsy in general are not more prone to everyday deja vu than people without epilepsy. And people who experience more episodes of deja vu than average are not any more prone to seizures than anybody else. So again, we can't actually look at deja vu as it's happening and compare it to, say, what's happening in the brain during a seizure, but we can look at frequency uh, we, uh, between these two uh, sets of, uh, of individuals. 
Yeah, and so it just doesn't look like seizures are going to be a good explanation for deja vu generally. It looks more like there might, you know, deja vu just happens to be one of the things that sometimes happens in the brain of somebody about to have a seizure. But it's not overall a generalized seizure phenomenon. Um, Now, the other major neurological explanation that Brown cites is neural transmission delay. And this refers to a set of explanations where information traveling from the perceptual organ, such as the eye, uh, it's traveling to different parts of the brain and it gets delayed along one of those pathways by neuronal misfiring or some other malfunction. One example that's given is the two different hemispheres of the brain usually receive information at the same time. But what if one hemisphere realizes that you're looking at gritty slightly after the other one does? Uh, And under this hypothesis, the delay causes a freshly perceived stimulus to be interpreted as old information because one part of the brain has already experienced it by by the time it gets to the other part. Well, this seems like a good place to move on to some of the uh, additional explanations because we're talking about old information. Uh, What is old information but a memory? Yeah, exactly. So now we're getting into those were the the two older branches. Now we're getting into the branches that I think are more favored among researchers today. The memory-based explanations, especially implicit memories and attentional explanations. Uh, now, Robert, uh, if we if we go to memory-based, I think you're going to get into this branch of explanations a little bit more when you talk about the research by Anne M. Cleary and Alexander B. Claxton later on. I saw you had something about that. So maybe we can talk more in depth about the memory-based explanations then, but just do a short version now. The gist here is that deja vu is perhaps, uh, maybe it has something to do with the way that memories are encoded and retrieved. So imagine you're in one of these deja vu scenarios. Maybe you're uh, you're going down a staircase into a basement in a house and you suddenly get this flash like, oh, I've been here before, but you haven't been here before. What if when you're experiencing deja vu on that staircase, you are remembering something you've seen before. It's just not this house. It's not the Mm -hmm. same thing you're looking at now. You're feeling familiarity because of some vague features of similarity that overlap with your current experience and some other memory that you are not directly accessing in full. Maybe when I experienced deja vu of like running into a tree branch while playing in the yard, the feeling of familiarity with the scene comes from the fact that there was some other time I was playing in maybe a similar looking place or a place with similar spatial arrangements of objects. And my friends were standing around me in a similar kind of orientation. And maybe I was injured or or fell down in some other way, except I don't explicitly recall that whole episode. I don't remember where it was or who was there or what happened. I just recall enough to recognize some basic congruities. And this leads to that strange feeling of familiarity familiarity with no obvious point of reference. So almost as if the the emotional pattern of something that occurred stuck with you, but the details of it did not. Uh, and, and that's what gets recalled. Right. Or details might have stuck with me in a way that doesn't allow me to access the full scene as a memory. Right. Mm-hmm. So like uh, I think a common thing that's brought up in this kind of memory research is like like spatial arrangements of things, you know, like if you feel deja vu in a room Maybe you were not in that room before, but we're in a room where like the furniture was arranged in a very similar way. And you don't explicitly recall that old memory, but something gets triggered in like the navigation parts of your brain. Like, what's going on? I, I know this place. 
Yeah, I mean, it, we do have to remind ourselves that as far as novelty goes in life, uh, all, there's only so much novelty that is really possible to a certain extent. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> even if you live a, a, you know, a wild and varied life full of, of, of travel and exploring new things, uh, you're going to encounter lots of situations <laughs> that fit into more or less the same uh, pattern. You know, you're going to go to mm-hmm. a bathroom that looks a lot like other bathrooms. You're going to do things more or less the same way that you've done it before. I mean, we are, we, we are creatures of habit. We are creatures of pattern. And for many things in life, there, there are only so many approaches to how we might uh, react to something or carry something out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, novelty is total illusion, eternal recurrence. You, we've all been through this before. Yeah, in fact, I think you've said that before. <laughs> No, I haven't. <laughs> I don't really mean that. Um, you know, and so I was thinking about this. I was thinking about, wow, th- this might sound like a weird way for the brain to work, that you could have this feeling of familiarity about a memory that you cannot explicitly recall. But I think there are a- there are analogies to this in things that we've discussed before. Uh, I was brought back to the idea of tip of the tongue phenomenon. We did a whole episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about this. Um you know, this is where, hey, uh, what's the name of the actor who played Riff Raff in Rocky Horror Picture Show? Well, the, the correct answer is Richard O'Brien. Uh, but the, the, there were some people listening right there who were like, oh, oh, I know that. I know that. But you couldn't quite come up with it, right? Why is it that you can feel like you know a word or feel like you know a name even though you can't conjure the word or the name up right now? Perhaps a similar thing happens with images or situations, kind of like a tip-of-the-tongue effect for things other than words, for situations or for, you know, images you look at with your eyes. You feel like you recognize this scene, but you can't actually call up the memory that is causing that feeling of familiarity. So I, I think, uh, and there is actually some research to to back up certain uh, memory-based explanations for, for some deja vu experiences. So at least as far as I can tell, I think the memory-based explanations might not explain all deja vu, but are a pretty strong candidate for explaining some cases of it. All right, well, let's move on to attentional explanations, uh, which, which I think is an exciting area because I, I think a lot of the mysteries of human consciousness make more sense to me when I have when I hear them explained in terms of attention. Yeah, me too. And I think this branch has a lot going for it. This is the the fourth of four. Uh, and so these explanations are some of the most simple, actually, but they make a lot of sense to explain some cases of deja vu. And there is actually some experimental evidence in support of them. So imagine you're driving a car, right? And maybe while you are driving, you're having a tense emotional conversation with the passenger of the car. Maybe it's, you know, your spouse or partner or, you know, your your child or parent or relative. You're having an argument or something. So your attention is kind of divided, maybe. Like you're not paying as full attention to the road in front of you as you should be. Then suddenly you see a man in a cowboy hat pushing a grocery cart full of monster energy drinks down the sidewalk. And you think, whoa, deja vu. Why do I feel like I've seen this guy before? Under the attentional model, the answer could be that you did see him before, a couple of seconds ago, 
but your attention was divided. And because you had your attention wrapped up in this intense conversation and you weren't paying as much attention as you should have been to the road, you didn't consciously register seeing this guy a couple of seconds before, but you did see him with some diminished portion of your attention. And when you finally focus full attention on him, he feels familiar even though you're just now consciously registering him. You know, in a, in a way, this reminds me of a, like a non deja vu experience that I have sometimes where I'll I'll run across a study or a paper that uh, I maybe just glanced at in the past or maybe I only read the headline but now I've come back around to it and I'm reading it uh, you know more closely you know and I'm actually taking it in and then I realize oh I think I think I do vaguely remember this study from when it originally popped up yeah, I mean, I mean, in that case, th- there's more of a time gap, right? So your memory, mm-hmm. I think, would be more accurate, actually. And I know right. exactly what you're talking about. I have that feeling, too, where, like, I, I sort of graze over something, um, you know, text content, and then I come back to it later, and it feels vaguely familiar, like out of a dream, because I didn't read it really closely the first time. But this um, time, instead of it being like a gap of five years, it's a gap of, say, like five seconds. Exactly. In Brown's words, quote, A brief initial perception of a scene under diminished attention is followed immediately by a second perception under full attention. The second impression matches that experienced moments earlier under degraded attention, and the individual does not consciously identify the prior experience as moments old, but rather attributes it to a more distant past." Uh, and I think that there's a lot of potential in this explanation. This could be what's going on in some of these cases. Yeah, I feel like this one feels like it fits really well with a lot of deja vu experiences that that I can relate to. I'm not sure that it it fits as easily or or I think it, it may still fit, but perhaps with a little more sort of cognitive work to figure out how it fits with some of the other examples of the deja vu experience that we've either discussed or will discuss. Yeah, I think you're right. And I would be strongly inclined to suspect that there are different explanations for different cases of deja vu, that there's not Mm -hmm. just like one trigger that creates all deja vu experiences, that it's, you know, just different kind of things going on. My gut feeling here is that probably some cases are best explained by by the implicit memory thing that we were talking about a minute ago, and then other ones are better explained – by the attentional divide thing. And then, of course, there are a few that are probably just direct neurological issues, like, you know, when the brain is being stimulated or when there's a seizure. Now, I'd like to come back to the link between anxiety and deja vu, because I I found a very interesting study on this. Um, Apparently, there is somewhat limited literature on the connection between anxiety and deja vu. But one uh, one paper uh, on the topic I came across uh, was titled Persistent Psychogenic Deja Vu, a Case Report. And this was by Wells, uh, Moulin, and Etheridge. And it was uh, published in the Journal of Medical Cases, Case Reports. Uh, and this was from 2014. So the researchers present the case of a 23-year-old British man with a form of persistent deja vu, and this is uh, observed in 2010. He was three years into his symptoms at that point. Wow. So, um, and uh, if you're, you're wondering, well, what is persistent deja vu? It's, it's basically what it sounds like, but I think more of this will come come across as I, as I roll through his, briefly through his case history. So the subject here had a history of anxiety and depersonalization. 
depersonalization. Uh, depersonalization, uh, if anyone doesn't remember, is a, is a state in which one's thoughts and feelings seem unreal or not to belong to oneself. And it may also entail a loss of all sense of identity. He also had a family history of obsessive compulsive disorder. So they, when they, when doctors looked at him, they didn't detect any neurological abnormalities and they assessed his recognition memory with tasks that were frequently used with dementia patients and they found no memory defects. They found that he consistently understood the false nature of the deja vu he was experiencing as well, coming back to a a key aspect of deja vu that we, we discussed in the first episode. So his reality testing was basically intact as far as they right. could tell. Yeah. Like he, when he, he would knew, have... he didn't actually think that he was really having memories of the present. Right. So uh, the patient's history of anxiety was tied with fears of contamination, which led to excessive hand washing and showers two to three times a day. And then college anxiety made things worse. So he took a break from it and he began to experience episodes of anxiety and deja vu that would last for minutes or even longer. Mm. They point out that he went on holiday uh, at one point during this period to a city that he had visited before. So he did have prior you know, memories of having been there, but he felt as if he had become, quote, trapped in a time loop the whole time. And the experience was apparently somewhat terrifying. So even though he knew, OK, I'm not actually in a time loop, it feels like I'm in a time loop. I know I'm not, but it's really still terrifying to experience. Totally. Oof. All right. And then uh, he returned to college in 2007. And during this time, tried the psychedelic compound LSD. Okay. And they write, quote, from then on, the deja vu was fairly continuous. So quick note uh, for everyone, as you'll remember from our, uh, what, five-part series on psychedelics, uh, this would this would seem to fall in line with the observation that the psychedelic experience can, for individuals with a predisposition, exasperate uh, a psychological condition. Uh, typically, one hears about this in regards to schizophrenia. So at this point, our subject is, is experiencing you know, near constant deja vu. So he goes to see a specialist. They found that he was experiencing anxiety and low mood. But for the most part, uh, like everything was normal. I think his uh, disassociative events scale score was slightly abnormal. Uh, but, but, but otherwise, it was, it was just this deja vu effect. Um, and, and interestingly enough, they write that he took to avoiding music and TV because he would invariably feel that he had seen or heard the material before. And then this would play into his deja vu experience or would make it more pronounced. Uh, and I found this to be interesting. You know, this idea, because this gets back to the idea of the novel and the familiar, because if deja vu is largely the experience of the novel as familiar, then would extreme cases like this require one to just try to avoid novel things as much as possible. Mm, yeah, just surround yourself with what's actually familiar so that when it feels familiar, it doesn't feel unusual. I mean, this is uh, th- this case sounds really disturbing because I don't normally think of deja vu as something that is inherently unpleasant. And when I feel it, it is strange, but it's not, it doesn't hurt, you know. It, it, it's not in itself, uh, you know, worrying or or upsetting, but I can absolutely see how if it persisted over time, it could take on that character. Yeah, I mean, a sneeze isn't that bad, but we wouldn't want to sneeze constantly. Uh, and, mm. and I would say that like a typical deja vu experience for me, and I think for most people, is far less distracting than a sneeze. Um, uh, and and uh, however, I will say that those experiences that I, I related in the first episode that I had recently, um, th- those were those were more... Uh, Potent. Those were those were 
certainly more powerful. And I would not, I certainly would not want to feel that all the time either. So uh, the researchers in this case, though, they propose that the form of deja vu described here, it might more accurately be described as deja vu, uh, this particularly strong sensation of reliving the present moment. Quote, he complained that it felt like he was actually retrieving previous experiences from memory, not just finding them familiar. They concluded, quote, it is plausible on neurobiological grounds that anxiety might lead to the generation of deja vu. The hippocampal formation, a structure of central importance in declarative memory and the ability to engage in recollection, is also implicated in anxiety as part of the septo-hippocampal system. Although this report does not prove a link between anxiety and deja vu, it does further support the suggestion that this area is worthy of further investigation. That's very interesting. Um, it, I mean, it makes me think about the link between deja vu and stress or fatigue. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how to separate out stress and anxiety. I think there's a good deal of overlap between stress and anxiety, but they're not exactly the same thing. Right. Yeah, they is it, it, often the case with human uh, emotions and experience. There's kind of a, a delicate web uh, where all these things, sometimes conflicting things are uh, and seem to be in rather close proximity to each other. Yeah. All right. On that note, let's take one more break. But when we come back, we'll discuss deja vu and dreams. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, I remember uh, a little while ago, we got an email from a listener who wanted us to look into the issue of Deja Rev, right? Yeah, yeah. I believe that this was a listener by the name of Anne. Uh, and uh, yeah, she brought up, uh, well, I'll just read a part from the email here. Quote, several months ago, I was introduced to the term Deja Rev. Uh, I first thought it was the speaker's mispronunciation of Deja Vu. However, <laughs> It's an independent concept. Deja Rev literally translates to already dreamed. It's the sensation that one has experienced a real-time event in a previous dream. It can be considered a form of precognition. I would love to learn a scientific perspective and explanation for this phenomena. So that sounds like a great idea, Anne. Let's uh, let's look into it. Okay. Well, you know, I would say just uh, from a personal perspective, when I experience deja vu, I don't know if my brain makes a distinction between déjà vu and déjà vu and déjà rev. Like, it seems like it, when I get that feeling of familiarity in the situation, I couldn't tell the difference between whether I'm feeling like I already have been here or feeling like I've already been here in a dream. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I th- I, uh, I I hear what you're saying there. I. I feel like with my experience, I, I do sort of see two t- like there's there's the feeling of it. There's kind of like that deja vu energy that, you know, intensity factors aside may essentially be the same. But then in some cases, I am instantly aware that it is somehow tied to external sense data. And in other cases, particularly these these stronger uh, feelings that I've had, they seem to be tied to internal uh, feelings or thoughts. Mm hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess the feeling of deja vu for me is inherently kind of dreamlike. Um, mm-hmm. it, it suddenly in waking life creates a little bit of, uh, of an aura of the feeling one has in dreams. Oh, yeah. And, and so it naturally to me kind of suggests like when I have that feeling of anomalous familiarity, I'm like, did I dream this before? 
But I accept that maybe in other people there there is this clearer distinction, like that there's one type of feeling like I've already been here in waking life, and the other one is like I already experienced this in a dream. It's just for me they've they've never felt all that distinct from each other. Okay. Well, um, let's look at a paper here. I'm going to refer to frequency of deja rev effects of age, gender, dream recall, and personality by uh, this is uh, Sredel, Goritz, and Funkhauser. We mentioned Funkhauser in the. Uh, the, the the last episode, published in the Journal of Consciousness Studies in 2017. Now, as we've uh, discussed already, you can broadly say, all right, there's deja vu. But then you, when you really get down into it, there are there's sort of different subsections to deja vu. And so you have things like deja rev that come up. Well, according to, uh, to Dr. Vernon Nip in his 1983 book, The Psychology of Deja Vu, and subsequent publications where the, in which he wrote about deja vu, there are perhaps 20 different forms of the deja experience. And uh, man, I'm not going to read them all, but uh, <laughs> there, there are some really good ones. There's like um, uh, deja su, already known intellectually. There's um, uh, deja dit, already said or spoken. So, you know, referring to a content of speech. Um, basically, they get into all the different nuances of how you might interact with the world or in, with your own brain. Like there's a one for already hallucinated, mm-hmm. one for uh, already eaten. Deja, deja mange. Yeah, deja, <laughs> deja mange. That would be a great one to just <laughs> shout out in a restaurant as you are uh, yeah, enjoying a meal. Uh-huh. Uh, but then, in, in, indeed, one of the uh, okay, no, I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking of uh, the Sopranos, where like uh, Tony is like, "You, you mange, Uncle June," but then Uncle June is like, "Whoa, déjà mange." Oh, I mean, there's uh, there's déjà musique already heard or played specific music, uh, and then there's oh, this one's really fat. I haven't looked into this one uh, in greater depth, but déjà paradoxe, uh, paradoxy, uh, basically already paradoxical, which that just sounds kind of mm-hmm. mind rendering to encounter a paradox and then have a déjà vu about that paradox. Uh huh. I'm I, I can't even think of an example of what that. Yeah, I, I don't like I say. We'll have to come back to that one. Maybe you, the listener, have an example of of a. Uh, of a deja paradox experience that you can uh, you can share with us, uh, but anyway, the, the main focus of this paper was the deja rev experience and the idea of, uh, of of feeling as if you have dreamt something before. And I think some of us can probably relate to that with our deja vu. Uh, you know, you might think, weird, I feel like I have dreamt this before. And perhaps some of us feel that more strongly than others. Uh, incidentally, uh, Funkhauser, one of the authors here, points out on his website, dejaexperienceresearch.org. That's de- it's with uh, uh, hyphens in there, deja hyphen experience hyphen research.org he points out that percy shelley wrote of the connection between deja vu and dreams though his thoughts were not published till after his death Mm. so here's the quote the scene was a common scene the effect that it produced on me was not such as could have been expected i suddenly remembered to have seen that exact scene in some dream of long here i was obliged to leave off overcome by thrilling horror wow But uh, back to this study in particular, they point out that as a blanket explanation for deja vu, 
This one, you know, dates dates back a, a quite a long ways. Um, one of the earliest explanations for the Deja experience, I think we mentioned this the first one, was uh, uh, when St. Augustine uh, wrote of it in the year 416. And then Sir Walter Scott, much later, writes about it in uh, the year uh, 1815. But the, the authors of this paper, they set out to perform a survey of the experience. Now, this was a survey of 444 people asking them about their experiences of deja vu, specifically deja rev, the association between this feeling of deja vu and their dreams. And so out of the 444 individuals that responded, um, the, it's, it's interesting. So the first of all, there was the the frequency. Now in the study, they break they break it down a little more a little more detail. But basically, they found that 95% of the people sampled uh, said that yes, they did experience déjà rêve. Uh, now, how often <laughs> they experienced it varied uh, quite a bit. Um, for instance, twenty-one or four point eight percent said that they just never experienced it. Uh, but uh, in terms of those that did, uh, like you know, you had like forty-one said that they experienced it less than once a year. But then there were eight individuals, which is only one point eight percent of the of of the uh, the individuals polled here. They experienced it several times a week. Wow. Um, well, yeah. I'm curious how this squares with previous research finding that you know up to something like a third of people or maybe up to 40% of people in some of these older surveys report having never had any experience of deja vu. I, I wonder what's going on because you talk to people nowadays, that figure seems kind of high. I, I would figure that, you know, close to, you know, nearly everybody has had like at least some kind of deja vu experience at some point. Uh, mm -hmm. But these older surveys you know, have it have it still very common, but lower. I wonder if there used to be more of a stigma or kind of weird paranormal association with saying that you've had deja vu. Does that make sense? Like maybe if people didn't think that there could be any kind of like normal explanation for it, they'd be less likely to want to admit it and talk about it. Like their gender norms about it, perhaps like a real man doesn't have deja vu or a proper lady never experiences deja vu. It is simply uh, not done. Uh, something to that effect. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, you, know, you, you can't be a cowboy if you got deja vu. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I've never... Uh, I don't, I don't think even Cormac McCarthy considered uh, deja vu and the American cowboy. Well, no, I, I'm just curious. Maybe there's something I'm missing here. It just seems like in these older surveys, fewer people admitted to having deja vu. Hmm. Now, with this particular study, I should note that the authors admit, quote, the high incidence of deja rev, again, about 95 percent in this sample, might be explained by the fact that the sample consists mainly of psychology students who consider ah. such phenomena as interesting and related to their chosen profession. That is well, OK. That makes a lot of sense that uh, in these surveys, we may be getting a a uh, less randomized, more rarefied sample of like uh, the kind of people who are more likely to remember these experiences and want to talk about them. Yeah, just more likely to be introspective about your your own inner reality. Mm -hmm. um, 
they also point out that the previously noted in other studies association between deja rev and dream recall frequency seems on one hand plausible. Okay, so uh, if we're, we're making the connection between this deja experience and dreams, a person with high dream recall might be more likely to attribute deja vu experiences to prior dreams. However, quote, the impression of having dreamed the actually occurring events arises within that moment and usually cannot be attributed to a particular dream in the past, even if the person's kept dream diaries in order to document the dreams prior to the deja rev experience. I think that squares with the overall anomalous um, familiarity phenomenon. Like when you have deja vu, the whole point is that you can't relate it to a specific experience in your memory. It's just the general feeling that I've seen this before. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and that seems to go go along with the the dream phenomenon as well. I also came across a 2015 paper that uh, um, that basically found that deja rev experiences are common after electric brain stimulation, standard treatment for epileptic symptoms. Uh, they looked at three different subsets of deja rev: uh, episodic, so you know, with a direct connection made to a specific dream; half-remembered scenes that echoed their current circumstances; and an even dreamier-like state in which the experience itself is dream or nightmare-like. So I felt that cast a little more perspective on on what may be going on here. So let's, again, remind everyone deja vu, the experience that something uh, novel is actually familiar. So imagine this. Imagine feeling this as you walk down a new hallway and you're about to open a door to an office you've never visited before. You feel at least for, you know, for a second there, for this fleeing moment, that you know what will be on the other side. Now, this is just a feeling but it feels real to the people who experience it. It feels like in this moment of deja vu, you are able to see the future. Yeah, and in fact, some people, I, I think this is one of the reasons that a lot of people have been kind of insistent on viewing deja vu as some kind of actual paranormal phenomenon and not just like a, a, a strange feature of the brain, um, that sometimes people feel like they are actually getting information about the future from it, you know, that like, yeah. I, I know what's going to happen next. And really, this does, I think, feel like this kind of thing adds another wrinkle to our understanding of People who claim to have precognitive abilities or experiences in their life, you know, because if you're if you're taking just like the hard skeptical approach to that, then it's like, OK, some people are crazy. Some people are scammers. Maybe some people are both of those. But uh, but this by, by thinking about the, t the link between deja vu and pre precognition, you could well have a situation where someone you know, maybe they're more inclined to engage in. Uh, supernatural ideas or some sort of religious model that incorporates precognition. But if you had just at least a few flashes of this sort of experience, like a moment where you're like, yeah, I knew I know what's going to be on the other side of that door. And even if it's it ends up to not be the case, you know, you still had that feeling that felt so real. Well, it, it, this seems like the kind of thing that you could actually put to the test if only you could create scenarios. We talked earlier about the difficulty of creating deja vu on command. It's obviously not easy to do. But if you could put together a test where you could sort of where you could sort of try to stimulate deja vu like experiences in people, you could actually put this to the test. Right. You could find out, well, wait, do people have any additional predictive power? 
All right. Well, let's let's jump into this particular study that I have lined up here. Uh, so uh, this is a 2018 study that was published in Psychological Science, and it was titled Deja Vu, An Illusion of of Prediction. And this was by Anne M. Cleary, who we mentioned earlier, and Alexander B. Claxton. So Cleary has put a great deal of research into deja vu, as well as tip of the tongue over the years. And her working hypothesis is that it's a, quote, particular manifestation of familiarity. Something uh, feels familiar when you paradoxically feel that it shouldn't. In her last 10 years plus of research, she started hearing a lot about people's claims to the precognition feeling, you know, again, not the reality of of uh, predicting the future, but the feeling, the confidence that you uh, you know what is going to occur. And she wanted to see if, as she suspected, the feeling was a memory phenomenon as well. And of course, the added uh, complication uh, here for, for her is that, you know, memory does aid us in our ability to predict future ev- events. So it's far from a trivial question. Memory isn't just there to make you feel good or bad about the past. It's about survival moving forward. So what did they do? Well, we've discussed some of the issues with trying to recreate deja vu in the lab. So their approach here was to uh, was was to basically pull it off uh, via virtual reality based on past studies that found out that subjects were more likely to report deja vu among scenes that spatially mapped onto earlier witness scenes. Uh, subjects were put through familiar virtual hallways and then asked if they felt deja vu or premonition at key turns. So, you know, now, this is a situation where you can just imagine, you know, Doom and Wolfenstein kind of hallways, you know, virtual hallways uh, and some of the same mapping, but uh, but a different feel, a different look. And then uh, the researchers would jump in at key points and see if uh, if there was de- a sense of deja vu or premonition on the part of the subject. And these were their findings. About half the respondents felt a strong premonition during deja vu. However, they were no more likely to actually uh, recall the correct answer uh, than mere chance would explain. So that's not to say that the take home here is that deja vu experiencers are not precogs. We know that. We knew that going in. But rather that it creates an illusion of certainty, confidence in the choice that might be linked to stuff like hindsight bias. Now, her work on all this continues. Uh, there's a you know, great deal uh, more that could be uh, learned about uh, the Deja experience. But I think this is really interesting because, again, you can see how this might form the bedrock uh, for greater beliefs in precognition and uh, uh, predictions of the future. You know, you, you build upon this with some sort of existing religious, supernatural, magical script about individuals who can sense the future. And uh, yeah, it seems like they would one would support the other uh, rather well. Sure. All right. So there you have it. We're going to go ahead and call it here. Uh, We hope you enjoyed our two episode look at the Deja Vu experience, all that it uh, seems to incorporate and some of our best attempts to understand it, though those those attempts are still very much uh, in process. The work continues. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, wherever that happens to be. Make sure you rate, review and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our awesome audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.